All right, good morning, Remnant. How are we doing? Well, it's great to be in God's house this morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're in a series, and if you didn't see last week, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it or watch it online um, or read it online, whichever you want. But, but we're at a time in our nation where I truly believe that one of the biggest challenges facing believers is that we have either forgotten or never really understood the sovereignty of God. And so we're in this series where we're focusing on the sovereignty of God. And so if you miss that sermon, I recommend you go back. But as our world gets more and more chaotic, we need to turn to God's word and remember that our God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. But sovereignty is not a word that we're really familiar with in the West. It's not a word that we embrace. And once we become familiar with it, not only do we understand it, we don't like it. And we have a hard time understanding how there could be anything in the world where our opinion doesn't matter. That there could be anything in the world where we don't get to weigh in on it. Sovereign means that someone has total, absolute, unchallenged authority. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want, involving whomever they want. They don't need or want your input. They don't need your opinion. They decide what they're going to do, and their word, their actions are final, and in the case of God, perfect and true, whether you understand them or not. I tried to come up with an example from the West to use as a comparison, and I can't find one. There's really no area of our life in the West that I can think of where we are completely surrendered and sovereign to anything or anyone. It's a foreign concept in the West. We'll see over the next few weeks how we've allowed our Western worldview to slant our view of God and particularly His sovereign will. In some areas of our lives and in our world, we're very comfortable with God being sovereign. And in other areas, we're clearly not. Now, an important thing for us to consider as we start today is God is not sovereign because we say so. Let me repeat that. God is not sovereign because we say so. God is sovereign because he says so. That's critical for us to understand. When we read the Bible, there are several claims that God makes that we have to accept or reject. First is that God's word is God's word. He's the one that wrote it. He's the author. He makes claims that he says are true. The words and truth in this book didn't come from man. They didn't come from earth. They're straight from the throne of heaven into that book that you're holding, and it's God's literal truth. In addition, God tells us that his words are his revelation of himself to us. If you want to know about me, it's in the book. He doesn't reveal everything about himself, but all we need to know about him is contained in the book. God also tells us in his holy scriptures that these words are true and amazingly eternal. They'll never change. They'll always be true. So we don't claim God to be sovereign. He doesn't ask for our stamp of approval. That's really hard for us to accept. He says, I am. And then he tells us who he is. We don't decide if he's sovereign or not. We agree with him that he's already sovereign and was sovereign long before he created us to have an opinion about his sovereignty. And long after we're in heaven in eternity, he'll still be sovereign. 
And our opinion still doesn't matter. In our Western culture, we've trained our minds to resist sovereignty. I promise you that as we go through the next three weeks, you will at some point find yourself pushing back against it. It's going to push back against what you believe should be. We have in our mind a sense of fairness. And by fairness, we mean everything should be equal. We place upon God our expectations at times that he must line up with our sense of right and wrong, that he has to be fair. Often when Christians begin to study the sovereignty of God, we start wrestling with this idea of fairness the most. You see, we have this preconceived idea about how God should fit into our little box of fairness. So before we go too far, I need to remind you and me of a very real truth. God's fairness left in the garden when we sinned. God's fairness left in the garden when we sinned. Nowhere in the Bible does God promise to be fair to everybody. Fairness is our sense from the West of how things should be. We focus on individual rights and individualism and fairness for everyone. Other nations focus on population. Other nations around the world don't have the luxury of being concerned about the individual. They're just trying to survive as a population. Fairness for everybody for them is not even a possibility. Because life is so lush in the West, we think about fairness. But when a population is struggling to survive, individual rights always give way to the greater good. When Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled in the garden against God, God placed the curse of death on every person. And it was fair. We were all sentenced to death, separated from God, totally dependent on him to save us or not. He's not required to save anyone. He would be just as righteous and just as holy if he let every human spend eternity in hell. He doesn't owe us anything. He's sovereign. The fact that God chooses to save anybody is grace. You see, we in the West, the way we think is, well, if God brought candy for one person, he's got to bring it for everybody. Okay, and so if anybody gets something, I should get that too from God. God owes me to be fair and equal. No, he doesn't. And I'm going to show you today that he's never been that way. And we know that. But he chooses at times to save people. He doesn't have to. When we sinned in the garden, he could have said, I'm not saving any of you. You're all going to hell. That would be just. That would be righteous. He'd still be holy. He'd still be God. But out of his grace, his unmerited favor, he's given an opportunity for people to be saved. He doesn't owe it to us. It's a gift. We think that God should have to offer salvation to everybody. But someone from the East would wonder, why do you think that? Why would you ever think that God owes you that? God can bless who he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. He's God. We should, they say, just be thankful that anybody gets saved. In the next three weeks, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. We're eventually going to narrow down our focus to answer a question that you will hear kicking around in churches all over the place. When it comes to our salvation, did God choose us or do we choose him? 
Did God decide who was going to be, did God decide who was going to be saved in advance? Or did we choose to be saved in response? Or some combination of both? We'll get there. But before we can study God's sovereignty in a specific topic like salvation, we first have to understand his sovereignty. We have to understand what that means. As we approach end times, we look at the path God has chosen for us. And it's critical that we know how God reveals himself because the world is bombarding us with lies about God. We don't need to try to discover who God is. We just need to agree with God already said who he is and how he's always been. And it's only when we understand the sovereignty of God that we can truly worship, that we can truly look to him and say, you are worthy of our worship. When we understand the sovereignty of God, everything makes sense. People have heard me say before, I don't worry about very much. I used to all the time. It was the sovereignty of God that killed worry in me. Once I understood that God was sovereign, once I understand who's on my side, once I understand who's next to me, what, what is there to be afraid of? Understanding God's sovereignty changes your life. Now, I have to tell you something about this sermon because it's not like other sermons I've done. I actually copied this sermon from somewhere else. I'll say it straight up. I couldn't find words to talk about God's sovereignty. I, I didn't have them. So what I decided to do is copy them. 95% of this sermon is scripture. I copied it right out of the book. And the reason is you don't need to hear my opinion on God's sovereignty. You need to hear what God says about himself. His words matter, mine don't. So I'm going to get out of the way and we're going to look at a lot of scripture. Now, I hope you like this slide because it's the only one you're going to see today. And the reason is, I, count, I counted we would have 300 and something slides if we showed every scripture that I'm going to read. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand that online, you can go and download the sermon and print it out. Every scripture is printed out for you, okay? But when it comes to the sovereignty of God, I don't have much to say because it's already been said. What does God's word tell us about God's sovereignty? Well, he says, I'm sovereign over all creation. I'm sovereign over every person. I'm king over every person. I am king of heaven and earth. I have total, absolute control. It's, it's in the kingship of Israel. God's sovereignty is revealed through Christ. Eventually, the sovereignty of God that was present in heaven at creation and throughout the Old Testament gets manifested in Christ. And the way Jesus taught that is he would say, the kingdom of God has come to you. The sovereignty of God has returned to earth. It was gone for a while because of sin, but now I'm back. The kingdom is here. My sovereignty is here. And he went throughout all of Galilee in Matthew 4, 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What Jesus told people in his message was, God is now back on earth. We are reaffirming our rule. We are going to go back to a time and a place where God's sovereignty, his will in heaven is now being brought back to earth. He's sovereign over creation. He has all encompassing rule over everything that's been created. Divine sovereignty of God is a central theme in the Bible. 
He delegates authority at times to kings and leaders and people for his purposes, but it's always for his purposes, and he's always orchestrating, understanding, and guiding the events of the world. The Bible presents Yahweh as creator God with a sovereign right to rule over all creation. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger winds his ministers of flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that may not pass so that they may not ever again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth from the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them are birds of heaven dwell and they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night and when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Men go out to work and to his labor until evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both great and small. They go to the ships. They go to Viathan. And when you formed a planet, Viathan is a Greek word, Hebrew word that means crocodile or large fish animal. And what he's saying is, you, you, you make the ships, you make all the animals and that play in the water. They all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wonderful works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wonderful works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he offered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. 
His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the words that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion of an inheritance. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another kingdom, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked the kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Then he summoned a famine on the land, and he broke all the supply of bread, and he sent a man ahead of them named Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until that he had come to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to bind the princes at the pleasure and to teach elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob traveled in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful, and he made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among the miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. The land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats throughout the country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts throughout their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees. He shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in the land and ate up the fruit of the ground. He struck down the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of their strength. Then he brought Israel out with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possessions of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statues and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. The psalmist is saying, look, don't forget what God did. Every event that happened on earth, God ordained it and made it happen. He's sovereign. Psalmists seem to clearly understand the sovereignty of God. Job had to learn the lesson. You see, Job made the mistake of challenging God's sovereignty. And I'm so glad that he did. Because he had to hear words from God that I don't want to hear. But basically, Job was asking God, why are you letting these things happen to me? If you were God, you wouldn't do this to me. Job 38.1. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's not a good start off just to a conversation. When God looks at you and says, look, who's darkening this with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurement. Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? What were its bases sunk and who laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
Or who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, This far you shall come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born them and the numbers of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the days of battle and war? What is the way to the place where light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has left a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on the land where no man is and on desert where there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters became hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loosen the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that the floods of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds fast stick together? Can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey and when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? God's not finished yet. He's still going. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth, you observe the calfing of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill and do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open and they go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free and who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I've given the arid plain for his home and salt land for his dwelling place? He ranges the mountains in his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great or will you leave him to his labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are pinions and plumages of love. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed in the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that a wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majesty snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. 
He goes out to meet weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him the rattle, the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home. From there he spies out his praise, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. In other words, God is saying, look, do you know all this stuff? Are you the one in charge of everything? Are you the one that makes the sun come up, the moon come up? Are you the one that tells every animal where their food is? Are you the one that waters the earth so animals have food? Are, is that you? That's what God's asking. And Job says this when he finally realizes the sovereignty of God. Behold, I'm a small account. I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, my mouth is silent. You are sovereign. You're in control of everything. You are judge of all. The psalmist says it this way. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You see, sometimes we talk about God like he's our buddy, like we got him on a chain, like we've got him on a rope. And I think a lot of times God is ready to tell us what he thinks about that idea. He ruled over Israel as king. He's sovereign. He'll judge all nations and bring final judgment to everybody. And his final judgment will bring peace. Psalm 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord is established. It will never be moved. He's going to judge people with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that's in it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees in the forest sing for joy before the Lord. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge in righteousness. He'll judge between nations. His sovereign judgment fell on Israel and I believe will fall on the U.S. Here's what he tells Israel. Isaiah 2, 6, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Don't forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust before the terror of the Lord from the splendor of his majesty. He goes on, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud, all that is lofty, all that is lifted up. Against every high tower, every fortified well, against the ships, everything that they put value in, the Lord is against. Man will be humbled and the lofty pride of men will be brought low and the Lord will be raised up. Idols will pass away. The people will enter caves and rocks, running from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. They'll cast their idols in silvers of gold, which they made for themselves, and it won't matter. The bats won't even take them. They're going to hide from me. And he says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is his own breath for what account is he? 
What God is saying here is the wrath of God is coming for those who reject the truth of God. Paul said it in Romans this way, for the wrath of God is revealed against heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I, I can't think of a better passage to describe our nation than the fact that the wrath of God is pending. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Odd, God says, people are going to worship the creature instead of the creator. That's humanism. The, 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 we are the light of ourselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to their debased minds to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossips. 30 slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice them deserve to, who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. God says, look, there's sexual confusion, there's homosexuality, there's all kinds of perversions going on. And he says, it's because I finally just gave them over to their debased minds. They were running so far from me, I just said, okay, fine, you're done, go. But then he gives a warning to many of us, and he says at the end, for they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but get approval to those who practice them. And the church has stood silent. If God brought his just wrath against his own people of Israel in his justice, how can he not do that to our nation? I just don't see it. It would be the first time that a just God looks at people who have rejected him, who've thumbed their noses and who made themselves their own God, who've worshiped their own idols, who have built their own money, their own security, their own everything, and he's not going to sit by as a just God and say, oh, but that's the United States. I have this covenant with them, apparently, they think, that I will protect them no matter what they do, that I have to bless them no matter what happens. God is sovereign over every leader and every king. He's not just sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over every earthly event that happens on the planet. If it happened, he allowed it. Foreign kings even came to recognize his sovereignty. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who, who God used to punish Judah because they had turned from God, he brings in King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is a total pagan. 
And yet look at what he says in Daniel 4. It seemed to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar, a king of the enemy, discovered God's truth and his own people missed it. Following that, Daniel describes the day when the Son of Man will ride on clouds. Daniel 7.13, I saw a night vision and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, Daniel says, I see a vision where God is sovereign, and he's sovereign into all of eternity. Darius, the Persian king who comes after Nebuchadnezzar, has the same experience with God. He says in Daniel 6, he wrote to all the people, everybody on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Sometimes the people that are farthest from God see his work and those who are supposed to be right there to receive it miss it. When Israel decided that they wanted their own king. You see, this is very interesting because there was a time when Israel said, God, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want a human king. And so they, they decided that the Samuel guy, or Samuel guy should pick somebody and that this Saul guy looked like he'd be a pretty good king because he was tall and strong and he probably won by 0.0124% of the popular vote. I don't know. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being king over them. In other words, what God says is, look, I'm sovereign, but sometimes I sovereignly let you have what you want. So you'll learn that's not what you needed. Solomon, the wisest man on the earth, when he looked back over the world that he had totally dominated, by the way. Here's what he says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, that's something that we forget, and I mentioned it last week. God is in total control of every king on this earth, of the decisions they make. He is sovereign. He's working out his will. Some kings are benevolent kings. Some are not. God is working all that out for his purpose and his plan. Paul said that there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. God's sovereignty is manifested in his kingdom and that kingdom is brought to earth. By, by demonstrating obedience to the will, Jesus will serve in his example to submit to the sovereignty of God. We read in Revelation that in the coming age, evil will be destroyed. We read in Revelation that heaven and earth will be made new. We read in Revelation that in the new heaven and the new earth, Jesus will reign and his authority will be completely unchallenged. He'll be sovereign. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. He'll be recognized as the Lord of Lord and the kings of kings. 
God is very clear in his revelation to us of the magnitude of his sovereignty. God reveals himself to us in his word. He makes claims about who he is. He doesn't invite our opinion. He doesn't even ask for our suggestions. He says who he is. And then he says, I want you to decide. He doesn't change to please us. He is. He doesn't change to, to, to make us feel better. He is who he is. Or as he repetitively says in scripture, I am. David clearly learned this truth. First Chronicles 29. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So God is from Genesis to Revelation has clearly revealed his sovereignty he says over and over, this is who I am. But in the West, we struggle. We struggle because we, we have this idea of fairness. In the West, we think God should be fair to every individual. What about the guy that lives on the island? What about the guy that never, what about, we, we look for fairness, particularly when it comes to salvation. But we know that fairness is not part of almost every area where God reigns. We don't think about it because we don't see it as unfair, but deep down we know it is. Job challenged God's fairness. He had lived a model life. Seemingly in a game with Satan, God decided to make his life horrible. God took away his family, his health, his possessions. It didn't seem fair. And Job challenged God, and we saw the response. Jeremiah learned a lesson about God's fairness. The word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. In Romans 9, we'll see that people were once again challenging God's fairness. And he says this, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Jesus says the same thing. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Jesus said, look, they belong to me. I'm sovereign. I can do whatever I want. God gives out gifts as God desires. Every gift we get is a blessing. Think about physical gifting. I want to show you a few areas of our lives where we just understand that fairness doesn't exist. When it comes to physical appearance, God hasn't been fair. Some people are given what the world considers great beauty and others are not. Some are born with great genetics, others are not. Some are born to compete as horse jockeys, others as basketball players. Some have high metabolism, others don't. Some are born with genetic disorders that limit them physically, others are not. 
Some are born with all their senses, while others are born blind or deaf or challenged. Some have been given remarkable physical gifts and others have not. Is it fair? It doesn't matter. Fairness was left in the garden. Clearly, these things are simply God's sovereign will. Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. In John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked them, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus' answer is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We, we look at that passage, and we think, how warped is that, God? This guy, from his birth, never saw anything. He stumbled around in the dark. He's been shamed as a sinner his whole life. His parents have had to do everything for him. He is blind. He can't do anything. And you're telling me the reason that happened was so that your works can be displayed in him. You're using him. It's not fair. Fairness left in the garden. If we all really got what we deserved, we'd all be burning in hell. Think about mental gifting. When it comes to mental gifting, some have been given enormous intelligence and an uncanny ability to learn and remember everything they see. They can consider the depths of physics and languages and communication and electronics, and others can't operate a microwave. You may educate them and train them and make them better, but you can't make them great. You can't build on what's not there. Genius is given by God, not by man. God has not made all of us alike. He has diversified his gifts. One man is fluent in six languages and another man struggles with his native tongue. Why is this? Because God is sovereign. And he's sovereign over the intellect and he's sovereign over our bodies. Is it fair? Doesn't matter. Fairness left in the garden. This is God's sovereign will. Some people are born a certain way, others are not. Our God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. We see God's uh, sovereignty throughout our lives, everywhere. Life circumstances, some are born with healthy bodies and a silver spoon in their mouth. Others are born into the most desperate of poverty with nothing in their mouth. Some are born in privilege and wealth with every opportunity. Others seem defeated from the start. Born addicted to drugs to teenage parents who are addicted to drugs. Some grow up in homes loved by parents, safe and encouraged. Others are born to parents who use them, abuse them, and berate them. Some are born with healthy bodies and never see a doctor until old age. Others are born with diseases and illnesses that severely limit their lives, their opportunities, and their freedom. Some age gracefully and keep their mental faculties. Others struggle with reality. Some are born on this earth during wonderful times of peace and prosperity, while others are born into a refugee camp in a war zone. Some have parents who are healthy and provide a great deal of aid and support to them. Others have parents who die from AIDS and can't help them at all. Is it fair? Doesn't matter. Clearly, these things are God's sovereign will. Our God is in heaven, He does as He pleases. The gospel. Why did some of us arrive in Christian homes fully exposed to God's truth? Why did God choose Israel and leave Gentiles in the darkness for years? The Israelites rejected God. They continually worshiped idols. They chased after their sinful ways. 
It seems like a thousand times they turned their face to God and stiff-armed him, and yet they were God's people. And they got a covenant, and nobody else did. Pagan nations rejected God, and they were destroyed by him. Israel rejects God, and they're blessed by him. Why did God's light of blessing shine on them and others are engulfed in spiritual darkness? Why did some of us arrive at Christian homes? Others are born in places where God's truth can never be found. Why do some have churches at every corner and others don't? How can two people sit in the same church, listen to the same message, both need salvation, and yet only one of them responds? Is it fair? We left fairness in the garden. This is God's sovereign will. We struggle with it. Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. I said at the start, we struggle with the fairness of God because we don't understand his sovereignty. We love it when God is sovereign and blesses us. We love it when he steps into our individual world and pours out his favor. In other words, we love God's sovereignty when he agrees with us on how great we are when he does what we want him to do, when we're being blessed by God, we don't even really think about fairness. We arrogantly believe that God should bless us, and in the West, we think God must bless us. We love God's sovereignty as long as it agrees with ours. We allow God to be God everywhere, except when he challenges our claim to be God ourselves. We love the idea of God in worship, making planets and stars and animals. We see him creating. Oh, God, you be sovereign, be sovereign, be sovereign. He's great. He's making things. He's making stars. He's black holes. He's creating new beings. It's incredible. God, you do that. You be sovereign over all creation. We love it when he's in his bank account handing out financial blessings to everybody. Yeah, you be God. You be sovereign. We call good things blessings from God. We love God anywhere except when he's on his throne. And when he's on his throne, sovereign over all, we start to squirm. We start to wiggle. We start to get nervous. When our enthroned Lord exercises his right to do what he wants to do with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he decides for his purposes, as he places his eternal mission of salvation over the temporary life of someone on earth, when he does all this without consulting and getting the approval of us, we begin to challenge him. That's when we rise up with indignation. We sell up in pride like Job. We demand an explanation of God. How could that good friend of mine die of brain cancer? God, how does that happen? Tell me, God, how does it happen? You could have healed them, but you didn't. Why didn't you stop it? You could have stopped the tsunami. You could have stopped the earthquake, the tornado. God, why don't you protect children? Why do children get sick? God, why didn't you gift me like you gifted him or gifted her? Have you ever noticed that we almost never get an answer to our why God question? It's not that God's uncaring. It's not that he's not listening. It's not that he's punishing you. It's because that question has already been asked and answered in Scripture. No matter what happens in your life, cancer, paralysis, deafness, loss of loved ones, war, presidential election, there's one truth that trumps, pun intended, every event in your life 
God is sovereign. That's the answer to the why question. Why did this happen? God is sovereign. Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. I don't like it. I know. But our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. There's something you don't know. There's a picture bigger than just you. There's all of eternity to deal with, not just your little time on earth. You see, God has a plan he's working out. And he doesn't need to consult you. And he doesn't ask to consult you. He is sovereign God. If it happened, he allowed it in his sovereignty. Psalm 115, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. Romans 8, 27, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I had a friend of mine that many of you knew, who died of a brain cancer. And he, he was at a place where he was comfortable with that. He understood that's what God's will was for his life. And I remember thinking about the sovereignty of God. That it hurts God as much as it hurts us. I deal with people every day who have cancers and are dying of things. And I deal with other people who are blessed with new babies. And it's incredible. But the reality is God is working out his plan on our planet. And he is sovereign. And he's love. You see, his sovereignty is wrapped in his love. It's not like he's this angry king who is just throwing down things from the throne. Everything he does is wrapped in love. Why did this happen? My God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. And he loves me. I may not understand it. I may not like it. I may not know all the details of what's going to happen. I may not know why God has allowed this in my life, but here are two truths I know. He loves me and he is sovereign. And those two things never change. His sovereign will is always wrapped in his love for his children. He knows all. He understands all. He knows the future. He decides all. His decisions are always just. Always right, always the best way to accomplish his mission on earth. You see, here's the problem we have. God's mission on earth is not you. And it's not me. You see, he's king, we're the subjects. He uses us wherever he wants. Whatever we do in our lives, he uses for his purposes. He doesn't ask our opinion, he's sovereign. But I can almost hear you saying, now what? It's just not just, it doesn't seem fair. It seems so unfair. I think God should be fair. Well, here's the deal. Fairness depends on your starting point. If everyone on the Titanic's going to drown and some are saved, is it fair? Probably not. But is it best to save the ones you can? Yes. If you believe that everyone on the Titanic must survive no matter what, then you'll see lifeboats as unfair. If you believe everyone on the Titanic is going to drown, then you see lifeboats as lifeboats. They're lifeboats. Our issue with fairness is that we forget that we were born enemies of God. That our starting point 
is that we are deserving of death and that he has appropriately, justly sentenced us to hell. That's our starting point. If God gives us what we truly deserve, this is it. No one's saved. All go to hell. And God is still just, righteous, and loving. But God in his grace, in his unmerited favor, has chosen to save some. He's provided an opportunity of salvation. He didn't have to do it. He doesn't owe it to us. He's provided it as an opportunity for us. Is it unfair? Maybe. Is that best? Yes. The term we use is the grace of God. We deserve punishment and death, but if some are saved because God chooses to do so, then we praise God. God is sovereign. He really does as he pleases. We're going to celebrate communion in a minute. And I don't know about you, I read the scriptures and we went through them very fast today. I want you to go back and read them as you can. Because in the scriptures, God so clearly says over and over and over, will you please just let me be God? Will you please surrender to my sovereignty? I know what's best. It's just like with your children. Your children have free will within the boundaries of your sovereignty. God's like, look, I'm sovereign. I'm going to work out everything for my plan. I need you to let me be God. Let me be sovereign. And the more you understand God's sovereignty, the more you begin to realize He's got tomorrow. He's got the day after. He's got the king's heart in his hand. There's not a detail in your life that he's not orchestrating, aware of, and using for his glory and his purposes. And when you can surrender to his sovereignty, when you can understand, this is God. When we talk about God, he created everything. He spoke and mountains showed. This is God. And he's on your side. As Jesus said, what do you have to be worried about? So as you take communion today, I want you to think about a couple things. When I study the sovereignty of God, I realize just how blessed I am. I know what I deserve. I know what I've been saved from. I know I didn't do it, didn't deserve it, and don't understand it. I don't know why God opened my heart to respond to him and other people are saying, no, I don't get it. But one day, sovereign God decided to prompt my heart with the Holy Spirit. And he moved me to listen and he revealed truth to me and he moved me to Jesus and he showed me the way and he did what I could never do on my own. He gave me the faith to believe and the faith to obey and the faith to surrender. He saved me and I don't know why. I don't know why I'm saved and others aren't yet. I don't know why God chose to reveal his truth to me at that moment in my life in such a strong and powerful way. It's a blessing. It's a gift. It's unmerited favor. As you take communion, you remember the price that was paid. You remember what Jesus did on the cross. You told him when you believed that he would be sovereign in your life. So as you take communion today, I want you to think about any area of your life where you've taken his sovereignty from him, where you're not allowing him to do what he wants, where you're challenging his goodness or his love instead of surrendering to his will. So as we take communion today, I want you to spend just a few minutes thinking about how blessed you are.
to be able to take communion, how wonderful it is that Jesus died for you, how you are so undeserving. And if you're putting expectations on God that he owes you anything at all, you need to leave it at the altar. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're sovereign. I thank you that you are in total control. I thank you, God, that there's not a thing on earth that happens. There's not an animal on this earth that isn't depending on you right now for their survival. There's not an ocean that's not moving under your guidance. There's not a single atom on this planet that is not under your control. Nothing happens without your head nod. Nothing occurs unless you agree it's so. We don't always understand you, God, but we know who we stand under. You're a sovereign God. In your sovereignty, you chose in grace to save us. And that's what we remember as we take the, the bread that is Jesus' body and wine and juice that's his blood poured out for us because we couldn't get home on our own. We couldn't fix our sin problem. You had to fix it for us. So God, we thank you for your unmerited favor, for the gift of our salvation. Thank you, God, for doing what we could never do in your sovereignty. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 